good afternoon everybody thank you all so much for showing up so we are going to do cash flow statements today so we have two different episodes that we have done already about the income statement and the balance sheet and this is going to complete the trifecta so we are going to talk about the cash flow statement today these are the three key financial statements all active investors in my opinion should know how to read analyze interpret etc so these three sets of financial statements the balance sheet the income statement and the cash flow statement are absolutely crucial for every single company every single 10k that you take out there for a company is going to have these three statements and we should know how to read and analyze these three statements now of these three statements the cash flow statement is often the most confusing to new investors a lot of people have asked me all, all kinds of basic questions about the cash flow statement because they don't quite understand how it is put together and so on so i hope that in this episode we'll be able to clarify uh, some of the concepts that surround the cash flow statement Uh, so let's start at the very basics so why 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 do owners invest into a company so a company is basically a vehicle for owners to earn a return on their invested capital so if you are let's say you open a chain of coffee stores or whatever you're a small business owner let's say you have 10 coffee stores in town now you invest a certain amount of capital into those coffee stores you you buy espresso machines and you buy coffee beans and you may you may employ people and and things like that so you spend a certain amount of your your own money on these stores and the reason why you spend this money is you're hoping that over a period of time these stores will make a profit for you and you can get all your money back and then some so you'll be able to pocket the profits every year now you can ask the question okay suppose a store makes uh, say uh, 1 million dollars in revenue of which say 20% is profit so to 200k in profit so you have 200k in profits per store does that mean that you can put 200k into your pocket and walk away uh, each year so each year can you will you, can you take out a check can you deposit a check from your uh, uh, store Uh, from your business bank account into your personal bank account for 200k uh, per store now that that is not true so just because a business earns 1 dollar or just because a business has 1 dollar of reported profits or reported net income it does not mean that the owners of the business can take out 1 dollar of cash from the business so there is a difference between what a business earns uh, or what a business says it earns on the income statement and what the owners of the business can actually take out of the business over time and this difference between the reported earnings and how much cash an owner can actually take out of the business that difference is what the cash flow statement helps us understand so 
just because a company earns one dollar does not mean the company will have one dollar of extra cash uh, lying in its bank account and we'll we'll see why that is so the cash flow statement will tell you okay how much cash did the business have at at the beginning of the year and how much cash uh, did the business have at the end of the year and if you take the end of the year cash it's not necessarily equal to the beginning of the year cash plus the profits made during the year that is not true and the cash flow statement is a sort of rationalizing statement it tells you why these two are not equal to each other why the change in cash in a business and the net income reported by it on the income statement why those two are not equal to each other so in effect the cash flow statement is something like a reconciling statement it takes net income and then it reconciles that to how the cash in the business has changed so uh, the the simple reason why net income is not equal to change in cash is because businesses don't just have cash they have a large number of other different kinds of assets so a business may have uh, inventory for example if if you run a chain of coffee stores uh, you you may have a bunch of coffee beans that are stored uh, in these stores that's your inventory you, you might have uh, fixed assets you you might have a bunch of espresso machines in in each store those are fixed assets so businesses they have a large number of different kinds of assets which are not cash they may have inventory they may have fixed assets they may have receivables if you sell coffee to people on credit instead of uh, uh, by cash instead of in cash you will you will have receivables and and so on you have all kinds of other assets other than just cash sitting on your books and so if you take your net income um if you if you assuming you haven't withdrawn any portion of your net income or anything like that then the total assets minus the total liabilities that you have your net worth would have increased by whatever your net income is so if you made um, say 2 million dollars of net income from your chain of coffee stores if you take the total assets at the end of the year and subtract out the total liabilities that you owe uh, that would have increased by 2 million dollars but all of that increase may not show up in the cash some of the increase may show up in your inventory the other uh, increase may show up uh, in your fixed assets or receivables or so so on so other assets could have increased or other asset uh, other liabilities could have decreased and and so on so any of these things could have happened and so uh, net income may not reflect just the change in cash it's going to reflect the change in your net worth or equity or assets minus liabilities so net income will reflect the change in net worth but not necessarily the change in cash but as a business owner what you're primarily interested in is taking out cash from the business over time and that's why just because a company has 1 dollar of net income does not mean you, you get to take out uh, $1 of cash out of the business if you own the business um so let, let's go over some of the sections in the cash flow statement so if you take any cash flow statement there is a standard way of writing down these cash flow statements uh, each cash flow statement is going to have three sections uh it's going to have uh, cash flow from operating activities cash flow from investing activities and cash flow from financing activities now 
each of these under each of these statements there will be a set of line items and all these line items the broader purpose is basically to start with net income and end with change in cash and these two need not be equal to each other the cash flow statement basically explains through the use of these three sections why uh, the the top of the cash flow statement which is net income is not equal to the bottom of the cash flow statement which is the change in cash held at the business uh, so i said that businesses have lots of other assets so let's let's just start from there so if if you take uh, the expenses reported by a business the first thing to understand about the expenses reported by a business is some of those businesses uh, some, some of those expenses are cash expenses other expenses are non cash expenses so the the classic kind of uh, non cash expense is uh, depreciation so let, let let's say you buy a bunch of espresso machines right uh, let's say each you, you have 10 stores and each store has five espresso machines and these espresso machines are pretty costly they cost let's say 20 20000 per espresso machine so that's $100000 uh, per store because each store has five of these uh and and since you have 10 stores you have about 1 1 million dollars worth of espresso machines uh just sitting there now if you assume that each of these espresso machines will last uh on average 5 years uh then uh w- what you will do is you you've already spent this 1 million dollars to buy those espresso machines the cash has already gone out the door a long time ago Uh, maybe five years ago to buy these espresso machines, but uh, what is the cost of these espresso machines? You're not going to expense out all the one million that you spent on the espresso machine uh, as soon as you spent them. So what happens is uh, the cash goes out the door in uh, year zero before you even uh, open your coffee store. You can't open a coffee store if you don't have the espresso machines. So cash goes out uh, right at the beginning. But how are these espresso machines accounted for so uh, the the standard method is called depreciation so if each espresso machine has a 5 year life and you have 1 million dollars worth of espresso machines you essentially take 200k which is 1 million divided by 5 you take 200k and you expense that each year so uh, the way depreciation works is uh, the cash goes out the door at the very beginning and you have 200k of expenses each year but uh these 200k of expenses which which are reported on the income statement they don't correspond to any cash outflow because the cash has already gone out the door at the very beginning so uh depreciation is what is known as a non cash cost so even though it is a cost that is reported on the income statement it has no impact on the amount of cash that you have uh on your balance sheet you don't have to incur a cash cost for that depreciation so what you have to do is uh if if you have this 200k of expenses that are reported as depreciation now the profit that you earned which is uh, 20% of revenues i said so that's 2 million dollars of profit that profit already includes this 200k of depreciation that was charged uh, because you bought these espresso machines but uh, that profit uh, this 200k is not a cash cost so it 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 looks like you can actually take out 2 million of profits plus this 200k of reported 
depreciation because it's a non-cash cost. So what we have to do is we have to take our net income, which is $2 million, and add these non-cash costs back to net income. And that's exactly what uh, the, the cash flow from operations section of the cash flow statement does. It identifies uh, for each expense that is reported by the company, is it a cash expense or is it a non-cash expense? Sometimes the expenses are, uh, par part of them may be cash, but the other part may be non-cash. So a classic example of that is uh, taxes. So let's let's say you, you had to pay uh, so, something like uh, 400K of taxes or something like that. Now, all of that 400K may not be due uh, right away and you may not have paid all of that 400K. So let's say you paid only 250K in taxes. The other 150K has not yet been paid. So that is uh, a deferred tax. So you have to pay that tax, and but you have to pay it in the future. You don't have to pay it right away. So part of the uh, tax that was already paid, so uh, the, the 250K of the 400K of taxes, that is a cash expense. And the other 150K, it's a non-cash expense. Similarly, when companies have stock-based compensation, they have to account for the uh, dilution to existing shareholders uh, that has been created by issuing stock and giving stock to employees. But again, when, when a company issues stock and gives those stock to employees, uh, it's a non-cash expense. There, there's no cash outflow associated uh, with that cost. So the idea behind this cash flow from operations is we take all these expenses, we figure out what component of these expenses actually resulted in a cash outflow, what component did not result in a cash outflow and then take take the non-cash outflow expenses and add it back to net income so this is a little confusing for people so you you take net income and then you add back some of the costs back to net income because net income already included all these costs so now you have to add back a portion of these costs that were already deducted to get net income. So this is a point of confusion for a lot of new investors. Why are we adding costs back into net income? And the reason is simply because they are non-cash costs. So that is one important reason why uh, cash flow from operations is typically higher than net income because there's a lot of non-cash costs uh, which have to be added back to net income. Uh, the other key thing is whenever you have a business, uh, you have capital requirements. So you, if you have a coffee shop, you have to buy inventory. If you, you, you need to buy espresso machines, all this requires capital. So if you spend uh, more capital or if you invest more capital into the business than what you report as depreciation or whatever, then uh, that exists over depreciation is not available to be taken out in cash. I'll, I'll give you a simple example. We, we say we had uh, five uh, espresso machines per store, right? And we bought those espresso machines for $20,000 uh, per machine. So if you look at just one store, uh, we have five espresso machines uh, and they costed us uh, uh, 20K per machine. So we have a total of uh, 100K worth of assets in those, uh, in, in, those espresso machines in store. Now, let's say uh, these espresso machines have a five-year lifetime, right? 
So what we will do is on on average, let's say we have to replace one of these espresso machines uh, per year. So the depreciation expense that we will claim for each of these espresso machines over a five-year lifespan would be about uh, uh, for, for for each espresso machine we will we will claim one fifth of its cost uh, because it has a lifetime of five years and because its cost is twenty k one fifth of the cost is four k uh, and since we have five of these we will claim a depreciation expense of twenty k so twenty k is our depreciation expense per store but suppose we have to go and actually replace one of these espresso machine. Now, because of inflation, the cost may have gone up. So now let's say each espresso machine, we bought it at 20K, but now we have to spend 25K to replace that espresso machine. So that means we have 20K of depreciation expenses, but in order to replace this espresso machine, which we bought, we have to spend 25K. So uh, that excess over depreciation, the excess capital that we have to invest into our business just to keep the earnings of the business where they are just to sell the same amount of coffee each year we have to uh, we have to spend 5k extra uh, per store right um, and and so that 5k is not available to be taken out uh, by the owner of the business if we we cannot take out that money from the business because if we take out that money we will have no cash uh, to replace the espresso machine and if, if we have no cash to replace the espresso machine guess guess what next next year we won't be able to sell any coffee and our um, earnings will drop precipitously we, we don't we don't want to do that so uh, we have 20k in claimed expenses depreciation but we have 25k in additional uh in in replacement uh expenses so so replacement of assets that have been worn down. So th this uh, replacement of assets has a fancy name. It's called CapEx, uh, capital expenses. So we have 20K of depreciation, but we have 25K of CapEx to offset uh, the depreciation. So actually there is 5K less uh, of income to take out of the business than what we reported as net income because net income only uh, included this 20K, uh, which was considered to be the cost of the espresso machine, but the true replacement cost is higher than the cost that is reported on the income statement because of inflation. So that, that is a very important point. Uh, during years of uh, inflation, during inflationary times, what happens is businesses that have a large amount of fixed assets and they claim depreciation on those assets, typically what happens is the replacement cost of those physical assets tends to be higher than depreciation. And so the amount of cash that a business owner can withdraw from these businesses tends to be much less than net income, simply because these assets have to be replaced and replacing those assets uh, is going to cost more than what those assets uh, cost us to buy in the first place. Um, so that that is one key reason why um, it, uh, why we cannot take out all the net income as cash out of the business. So uh, typically this CapEx, capital expenses, are part of the cash flow from um, investing activities, the, the second section of the cash flow statement. Uh, but there are again, two kinds of capital 
uh, that a business needs. So business may need uh, more in the way of fixed assets, espresso machines and so on. Uh, the business may also need more in the way of inventory. So typically when there is inflation, um, even if you want to sell the exact same quantity of coffee, you have to, if you, if you look at the value of the coffee beans held, held at the store, the value of those coffee beans will go up simply because of inflation. In, in nominal terms, the value will, will go up. And so every time you have to invest into the business, every dollar uh, that is in excess of things like depreciation that you have to invest into the business is one dollar that is not available to be withdrawn by the owners of the business. So for example, if uh, this particular chain of coffee stores, if you have to put an extra 100K of inventory uh, into each store or an extra $1 million of inventory for the whole chain, that extra $1 million is not available to be taken out uh, of the store because that $1 million has to be used to buy inventory. So not all the profits are available to be taken out. Part of the profits have to be uh, recycled and reinvested back into the business just to buy more inventory. And that is to sell the exact same amount of coffee that we sold uh, last year in, in terms of uh, the number of cups or something like that. Uh, so it, during inflationary times, what happens is uh, owners are typically forced to invest more and more capital into the business. And when you invest more capital into the business, each dollar of capital that is invested uh, is one dollar of capital that is not up available to be withdrawn as cash by the owners. This is why inflation uh, is, is such a big danger uh, to business owners, simply because it just eats capital. So Warren Buffett has called inflation a giant corporate tapeworm, simply because for a business to sell the exact same amount of coffee that it sold last year, it now needs more inventory. And the owner of the business has to put up the capital to buy more inventory. So this, this is called change in working capital. So inventory, receivables, all these things, if they change, then uh, the change in working capital is included in the cash flow statement. And usually if the working capital, if inventory and other things in the business increase, then that results in a negative quantity on the cash flow statement. Um, and so you have less cash to take out. So. Uh, so th th that is cash flow from operations and cash flow from investing activities. So cash flow from operations includes uh, all kinds of non-cash costs, depreciation and uh, 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 stock-based stock compensation, um, deferred taxes, the, the non-cash portion of the, of the tax, things like that. Um, and it also includes... Uh, change in working capital inventories receivables and so on these are the two big things that go into the uh, uh, the cash flow from operating activities section of the cash flow statement uh, then cash flow from investing activities um, that includes uh, any any money that is spent on uh, refurbishing uh, the fixed assets of the business like uh, uh, if, if you open a new store or if you buy a new uh, espresso machines to replace the old espresso machines in a current store. Th those would, uh, those investments, uh, which again represent a cash outflow, uh, th those would come under uh, cash flow from investing activities. Uh, and then finally, there is uh, uh, the cash flow from 
financing activities. So, uh, so far we've seen um, all, all all the cash that a business uh, was using. Um, but, you know, businesses get cash from two, two main sources. One is debt and the other one is equity. So equity is cash that is put up by the owners of the business and debt is cash that is put up uh, that that is put up by creditors that's borrowed from creditors so when a company raises new debt then uh, it suddenly gets a cash infusion but that cash which is borrowed money is not included in the in net income or anything like that it's not income it is just money that is borrowed by the business right so there are reasons like this why the cash in a business may increase it may have simply borrowed that cash uh, so these things come under cash flow for, for uh, from financing activities. So they, they are not re really related to uh, cash generated by the business through its operations. It's just cash that may have been borrowed uh, by the business. Again, um, uh, the owners of the business, if uh, they, they may also issue uh, new equity in the business. And so they may raise cash that way. That's also not part of uh, the operating cash flows of the business. So when, when a business raises debt or when it raises equity, the cash balance is going to increase. But that's not because the business generated a profit. That's simply because the gen business generated more, raised more capital. And so th those kinds of items will fall under uh, cash flow from financing activities. And similarly, when a business pays off debt, uh, the, the cash balance will decrease. And, but again, that is not related to the operations of the business that's not uh, that's not a loss that the business makes from operations it just uses some of the cash to pay off debt and similarly if it uses cash uh, if it distributes cash to owners as dividends or if it uses a portion of the cash to uh, buy back shares all these things result in a decrease in cash uh, but that decrease in cash is not because the business made a loss or anything like that it's just because the business changed the how it is being financed. So uh, anything to do with debt financing, anything to do with equity financing, um, when, when a business raises cash or when a business uh, spends cash to reduce debt levels and things like that, that will come under cash flow from uh, financing activities. So broadly speaking, uh, these are all the main reasons why income and change in cash are not equal to one another. And the cash flow statement tells us uh, exactly line by line uh, through these three sections why these two are not equal to each other. But ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, business owners care about how much cash they can take out of the business. And uh, so going over the cash flow statement can tell us a lot about how much cash a business owner can take out of the business over time. So there are some businesses where every dollar of income that is reported by the business has to be reinvested back into the business um, simply to maintain current earnings power, not to grow the business, just to maintain current earning power and unit volume and things like that. Now, these businesses, they may report a lot of money in net income, but the owners may never get to take out any cash from the business. So these are uh, the, the reported earnings of these businesses are low quality earnings simply because the owners will never see any of that reported income. In fact, when Buffett first started uh, 
buying uh, shares of Berkshire Hathaway, he very quickly realized that uh, the, the business had lots of income, but uh, because they had to keep reinvesting uh, back into the business, they had to keep buying more and more advanced um, textile making equipment and things like that, that they could not take out much cash from the business at all. So it was a low quality business. Whereas with something like C Scandies, which he bought later, uh, that the the business, uh, almost every dollar of income that the business reported uh, could actually be taken out by Buffett as cash. And then uh, he could take that money and then use it to buy other businesses and uh, he could buy securities uh, in the stock market and so on. So there's a big difference uh, in the quality of businesses. Some businesses, all their income can be taken out in cash. Other businesses, a lot of the income just has to be reinvested back into the business uh, just to maintain the business at its current level. And so the cash flow statement is key because it helps us distinguish these two kinds of business. So there is high quality earnings and low quality earnings. And so one dollar of earnings reported in company A and one dollar of earnings reported by company B, they may not have the same quality. So ideally, we should look for companies that report earnings where uh, one of two things must happen. Either all the earnings of the company should be taken out. The owners of the company should be able to take them out as cash. That's That's good. Or those earnings should be reinvested into the company but that reinvestment shouldn't be just to maintain the current state of the business that reinvestment should actually help grow the business over time so that the owners benefit from compounding if you have a business where all the income has to be reinvested but the business is not going to grow at all then uh, we have poor quality earnings and studying the cash flow statement the three sections of the cash flow statement tells us when a business is high quality and when a business is low quality. So I think this is pretty much all that I wanted to say about the cash flow statement. I hope this was useful. And uh, let's start taking callers now. The next caller is Keith. Hello. Uh, hello, Keith. Hi, I just... Um... Yeah, I think this is a, a fascinating topic, and thank you for going through it. Um, I think one of the things that's really um, hard about, not hard, so the statement of cash flows can come completely from the P&L and the balance sheet. So in, on one hand, it's almost a throwaway because it can be derived. On the other hand, in a pragmatic way, it's also where a lot of confusing and maybe things that companies don't want to disclose end up, right? And so I think it's a really hard thing to teach because certainly the accounting flow of having to invest in the business where you add back the cash for depreciation so that it makes sense. But I think the P&L and balance sheet are almost best taught abstractly with examples of like running a coffee stand or a lemonade stand or a factory. The statement of cash flows, it's hard to get kind of intimately familiar with it, I think, unless you go through the actual results of given companies. And the reason I bring that up is because what the statement of cash flows forces you to do is, is 
trace through what the account, what the company has said on its P&L and its balance sheet and see how it ties back to those results. And there are many, many tricks that companies can use to make their financial statements be more flattering upon review. So for instance, one of the big questions that comes up is, you know, generally working capital is the pluses and minuses of operating a going business, right? So yeah. your accounts payable goes up, goes down, receivable goes up, goes down, all those things. So I guess one of the better ways to go through and learn the statement of cash flows is literally to start at the top because the top line of a statement of cash flows is the net income of the period that you're looking at. So it starts with understanding everything that goes into the net income. And I like that because it abstracts away this EBITDA um, view that we have of companies when we evaluate them from investment. Net income is literally everything that should be included um, to your bottom line. So with that as the starting point, then you can see the accounts payable, accounts receivable, you know, accrued payroll liabilities, prepaid expenses. You can see line by line where those tie out to the performance of the business. And for example, you know, technically, if your accounts receivable goes way up in a period, right? It makes your P&L look better, but then you see in the statement of cash flows that the adjustment due to accounts receivable is negative, i.e. it drew down cash. However, you know, you can take your accounts receivable and finance it with a company who does that, right? And if you do that, if you sell, say, a million dollars of receivables in exchange for $900,000 in cash, and then in return... In return, you the company that's, that goes out and collects those receivables on your behalf now for them, that, that moves the way a company appears to perform when you look at its statements of cash flow, statement of cash flows. And so I think what's interesting about it is that it's one of those things that's hard to get your head around. But if you do the reps of going through actual statement of cash flows really carefully from actual companies you'll see all these flow throughs and tricks that occur. And it's not always a bad thing, but the interesting thing is because it's a tying out document between the P&L and a balance sheet, a lot of times companies, they have to disclose things there that aren't necessarily at the first pass on the P&L and the balance sheet. So I think it's such an, an important topic. At the same time, um, listening to you go through it, one, it's brilliant, but it's also a hard topic to come around from numerical examples on like the coffee shop and whatnot. And as someone who's taught it over and over again, like I totally applaud you. Great, great um, breakdown of it. But I think it's more useful when it's coming out of like the actual financial statements, particularly of publicly traded companies. And if you run a company, you really see the difference because, you know, as a practicing accountant and, you know, financial manager, right? The most common question one gets is, you know, if 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 my business was profitable, where is that cash? Right. And so it's a good exercise to go with go through with operators of real business. Right. Um, but in the case of publicly traded equities, a lot of times the owners, a.k.a. the stock, the, the people who invest in the stock, they don't necessarily have the same question. They're looking for ratios. They're looking for profitability for, and honestly, most investors will forgive items that are in the investing and financing buckets and really focus on the operations buckets. And that's why 
uh, in reporting to a public market, there's a tendency to downplay the cash burn from operations and upplay the cash burn from investing and financing. Um, but there's a lot of slippery ways to do that. So I guess I'm just up here to applaud you uh, for digging into the statement of cash flows because you know, when you're learning accounting as an academic approach, like it comes last and you can figure it all out from the P&L and the balance sheet. And when you run a real business, you know that, right? Like, um, but as an investor, it is absolutely where the bodies get buried. And I think if you work, you know, from the statement of cash flow outwards, it, it is a great way to evaluate a business, not only to sort of check how they look at the business, but to see the guts of how that industry actually works because that is where sort of the sausage gets made so the sausage gets made anyway sorry for the long speech but it's a hard topic and i really really value you uh presenting it here and i love your work and um thank you so much thank you keith um all, all uh, very very valuable points so um yes you did say that the the cash flow statement can can be derived if, if you know the balance sheet and if you know the income statement Yes, you can derive the cash flow statement just from from those two. Uh, although in some cases it may be a little difficult to do this derivation, uh, simply because uh, for especially for public companies, um, if if you look at the income statement, the income statement may tell you how many shares are outstanding or whatever, but uh, it may not necessarily tell you uh, how the outstanding balance uh, came to be. So. Uh, how much of uh, uh, stock-based compensation was done and how much of buybacks were done to offset the stock-based compensation. Uh, these two may uh, end up canceling each other out and then you may uh, eventually en en end up with the same number of shares uh, left at the end of the period that you started with. But then the, the problem here is you, you don't know uh, exactly what what to do uh, uh, how to derive the cash flow statement from that so there are there are certain quantities in in the cash flow statement uh, that may be a little hard to derive if you just look at the balance sheet and the income statement you're, but you're you're absolutely right if, if, so so are if you, you also take and, into account the statement of uh, shareholders equity so that's what i was going to say that's exactly. the brilliant that's the brilliant point so as far as the derivation for everyone listening so a P&L starts on a date and ends on a date. It's a span of time. A balance sheet by definition is one point in time. So if you have the P&L for a given time to derive the statement of cash flows, you need the balance sheet on the first date of the P&L and the last date of the P&L. But he's absolutely right that especially for, well, for all C-Corps, frankly, but especially for public ones that tend to have lots of different types of equity, you need to follow the statement of shareholders equity as well, which has less reporting requirements on it. But I still think you can follow the flow through if you look at all a company's public filings regarding changes of equity, um, insider buying and selling, um, disclosed 5%, 10% investors. But that's much harder work. And frankly, rolling up your sleeves and combining, because at the end of the day, the statement of cash flows is unnecessary if you have the P&L and the balance sheet. And let's presume that we trust those are accurate. The last document that actually matters to analyzing at least a C-Corp, a, a, a share-based company, is the statement of shareholders' equity. Um, so it's interesting because statement of cash flow is, you know, people consider it number three in the ranking of financial statements. But to actually tie the real 
total performance of owning the business together, you can forget the statement of cash flows and work off the P&L balance sheets and derive the statement of shareholders' equity. But is it, it is an absolute nightmare. Well, <laughs> yes, absolutely. And uh, the other thing for which the cash flow statement is very useful is e- even though you can derive it from the other statements, um, as you said, companies like to play uh, a lot of tricks. And that, there is this wonderful book by, uh, I think his name is Howard Schillett on financial shenanigans. The title of the book is uh, Financial Shenanigans uh, that companies like to play. And uh, in all those uh, shenanigans, one important point to bear in mind is earnings are an opinion, whereas cash is reality. So a company, um, by playing around with assumptions for depreciation and things like that, that, there is a certain amount of leeway in how much earnings a company can report. So if a company wants to report, say, $1.50 per share in earnings or something like that, because it is given that guidance to um, analysts or whatever, th- there are ways it can get to that number. But uh, there is only one way a company can distribute $1.50 and of cash in dividends. It has to have that amount of cash in, in dividends. So if a company is... Uh, using cash for dividends, using cash for buybacks, using cash to pay taxes even, all those things can be done uh, only with cash. And so uh, if if you look at the cash flow statement, you can tell exactly how much cash the company is actually distributing uh, to its owners and to the government and and so on. And that tells you, that, that can help you figure out whether uh, the balance sheet and uh, the income statement, whether the numbers reported there are suspect or not. In fact, in this book, Howard Shillett goes through uh, the the financials of companies like uh, WorldCom and Enron, which were later found out to be frauds. And he showed that there are so many red flags uh, when you compare the cash flow statement to the income statement and things like that, where you had reported earnings on the income statement, but somehow that they always found a way to take these reported earnings and then subtract them out so that it didn't show up in cash on the balance sheet. So whenever you have uh, suspect companies, um, it's it's a good idea to read the cash flow statement just to make sure that uh, what is reported on the income statement and the change in cash, uh, actual cash used to uh, buy buy div- uh, 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 used to buy back shares and issue dividends and things like that. Uh, that the change in cash makes sense. So uh, it's it's very useful as a as a forensic tool. And uh, to your point, uh, you you said that uh, the the quality of earnings uh, it makes a huge difference. Uh, you you can tell the quality of earnings by looking at the cash flow statement. So if, if a company reports one one billion dollars of uh, profits, but then all of that one billion just shows up as an increase in receivables or inventory or something like that, uh, that's not much use to an owner of a business because an owner of a business cannot take out receivables or inventory. An owner can only take exactly. out cash from the business. Exactly. And so, for those uh, for those listening along, uh, um, leeway is a massive, well, it's a massive euphemism in some cases, um, but there is, there is a huge amount of ability to sort of alter in a compliant way um, in somewhat of a compliant way, the appearance of like what the earnings are comprised of in their decomposition of cash flows. And 
certainly one of the things is like a you know a negative cash flow in the in the in the um in the uh financing bucket can, can mean um can mean a change to uh the statement of shareholders equity so watching all of it uh but it really it's such a tough topic to, to, to cover in an abstract way. I just, I highly recommend people pick their top favorite two or three companies or their two or three largest positions and really go through it. Don't read any of the language. Start purely from the statement of cash flows and just follow the billiard balls around um, because that is how you just pragmatically go through it. And I, I loved this book. I, I, I haven't read it in a long time. I'm seeing here it's a fourth, uh, fourth edition. But and I haven't read it since 2011, I think. But I always thought that the guy's name being Shillit was really funny um, because that's essentially what's happening usually when you find um, problems with fraud. Uh, absolutely. Thank, thank you so much for all, all your comments, Keith. Let's, let's go to the next caller. Uh, it's Ambro. Yeah. Uh, uh, thank you for this episode. Um, I just want to have one question. I've been wondering about it for a long time, and that's the changes in working capital. Um, let's say, for example, receivables. Um, last year, the receivables were were hundred million, and uh, at the end of the year, it's fifty million. So what, what we usually do is we find the difference between uh, the two numbers. And since it, it decreases, we assume that uh, the company collected 50 million. So that's, that's cash in flow. Uh, but it could have been uh, the case that 100 million and then it went up to 200 million and then went down by the end of the year to 50 million. So that's not only 50 million that was collected. It's actually, uh, you know, 100 and maybe 250 or 200. So why are we always assuming just the difference between the beginning of the year and the end of the year? And it works. <laughs> oh, that's uh, right. Yeah. Uh, same thing goes well, with inventory, payables. Right, right, right. So, so uh, the 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 simple answer is that uh, when, whenever you have a transaction, um, the the total assets, um, uh, the, the the total debits uh, should be equal to the total credits. So, what what that means is um, the the balance sheet is going to tell you uh, how much is left in receivables uh, at the beginning of the period and at the end of the period. And the difference between them is essentially uh, what, what what was collected, right? So uh, let, let me see. So there, there is a state quantity and uh, there is a flow quantity. So just imagine uh, a bucket of water or something like that, okay? Now, um, let's let's say that bucket of water uh, currently uh, has, has one, one gallon of water in it. Now... Uh, Let's say uh, du during the course of this, uh, this, uh, the, the, the next one hour, huh, somebody comes in and pours two gallons into the bucket 
and then someone else comes out and uh, uh, takes takes away uh, one gallon away from the bucket. Um, now it doesn't really matter whether uh, the first guy came and his two gallons. Uh, he he put it in um, f- four stages of half a gallon each, or two stages of one gallon each, or whatever. What what just matters is how much flowed into the bucket and how much left the bucket. So in in this particular case, uh, we, we had uh, some some amount of uh, water in the bucket initially. Let's call that X gallons, and then somebody came and put in two two gallons, and then somebody removed one gallon from the bucket. So now we have X plus one. Uh, gallons, right? And that is equal to one gallon. So X must have been zero. So if the bucket started empty and someone, uh, there are all kinds of people who are coming and uh, pouring water into the bucket. Some of them are pouring water into the bucket. Some of them are removing water into the bucket. It really doesn't matter what all the individual people do. What ultimately matters for the final, if you're only interested in the final water level, uh, then the net amount of water that flows into the bucket, if you add it to whatever was there in the bucket, this chart of the time period, that will give you how much is there in the bucket at the end of the period, right? So it's something like that. So you can think of this as a bucket of cash uh, and it doesn't matter how much receivables increased or decreased during the course of the year. What, what ultimately matters is the net change in receivables, just as uh, a net change uh, in in the water level in in the bucket does does that answer the question yeah it, it's it's clear yeah thank you but the the only difference is that receivables when it go up it's not uh cash out right but when it goes down uh it is actually cash in am i right well um so so the the thing with accounting is you can never change just one item. So whenever you look at receivables, you're also simultaneously looking at cash. There are always two accounts that are being affected by every transaction. So if receivables go up, uh, what, what, what that typically means is uh, you've sold something to a customer on credit. That's why receivables go up, right? So uh, if, if someone comes to me and uh, buy, buys, uh, say, say a, a coffee from me on, on credit for $5, that means my receivables from this customer has gone up by, uh, uh, by $5. Uh, but then at the same time, uh, my inventory may have gone down because I've used some of my coffee beans to make coffee and sell it to this guy. Uh, my revenues uh, have gone up by five, $5 because I... I I've now sold coffee to this person and delivered the coffee. So revenues go up. So it's never just one account that is affected. And tomorrow when I go and collect these receivables from the customer, so I I go to the customer and uh, collect my $5 of receivables or whatever. So now, uh, again, there are two accounts that are affected. There is cash that is affected because now I have $5 more cash than what I had before. But at the same time, I have $5 less of receivables than what I had. So you can't just change receivables on its own. Uh, a change in receivables is always accompanied by a change in some other account, like cash or inventory, revenues, and, and so on. So there are so many, uh, uh, both balance sheet and income statement quantities that change uh, that 
along with receivables at the same time. So you, you can choose to look at receivables on its own, but usually when there's a change in receivables, there's also a change in some other thing. And you have to look at all of it together to get an idea of what has changed in the company as a result of a particular transaction. Yeah, yes. you're right. right. Yeah, no, it's clear. Sure. Uh, and, just one more question. Oh, uh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, can you type just the name of the book, please? Uh, oh, so yes. Can get this. Uh, so, so the name of the book, uh, I have it in front of me. It's Financial Shenanigans. How to Detect Accounting Gimmicks and Fraud in Financial Reports. All right. So, Thank you. And, and the author's name is Howard Schillett. Okay. Uh, let's take the next caller. His name is Yinka. Hi, hi, Tenke. Uh, first time Hello. caller here. Um, just want to say thanks to, I guess, all the effort you put in into teaching these concepts. Um, so I had a question going back to your coffee shop um, example. Sure. You talked about a twenty thousand um, depreciation expense and a need to replace one of the coffee machines for twenty five thousand, and you said yes. that that meant the net position or cost of the new machine was five thousand. So I just wanted to check. Um, whether I understood it properly. So does that, is that because of um, accrual-based accounting? Because my view is that 20,000 didn't leave that business that year, that 25,000 did. So cash-based accounting, it would be 25,000 minus 25,000, not 5,000. Well, so is it because uh, of accrual? So the first thing is, if the machine lasts five years, uh, let, let's just take one espresso machine. Okay, Let, let's uh, forget about how many espresso machines are in the store and, and so on. So if you just look at one espresso machine, if you bought the machine for 20000 then depreciation expense uh, in any given year is only 4000 because this espresso machine is going to last for five years. So uh, I... I if you look at just one machine, you, you don't get a 20,000 depreciation all in one year. You get that 20,000 depreciation over five years. But at the end of the five years, you have to replace this machine. And when you replace the machine, you may have to spend 25,000 and not 20,000. And so what happens is the, uh, the depreciation expense, which is 4,000 per year, it actually understates the cost of the machine. Because of inflation, the cost of the machine has gone up and eventually that machine will have to be replaced, right? So uh, th that that is the goal. So at the end of five years, if I know that the machine is going to cost 25,000 and I want to set aside cash to be able to buy this machine at the end of uh, five years, then I have to set aside 5K per year today right so if i set a, set aside 5k per year then over 5 years i would have set aside 25k and i can then use that 25k to go and buy this machine so i may claim 4k as depreciation expense but i have to set aside 5k if i want my business to stay in operation so that means i have uh, that 5k which i set aside is not available for me to withdraw out of the business that means I have understated my costs by 1K because I, I've reported only 4K of costs 
uh, on my income statement. That's the depreciation. But I have to set aside 5K. So uh, the extra 1K is understated costs. And typically in inflationary environments, lots of businesses that have lots of fixed assets have these kinds of understated costs. Eventually, those understated costs uh, will, will be real cash outflows. Does, does that answer the question? Yeah, yeah, it does. But in terms of actual cash leaving the business, right. it, it, it would be that 25K, right? If you look at that after five years. Yes, because... after 25K, uh, after five years, uh, the actual cash leaving the business will, will be 25K. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I think that answers it. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so we we have uh, Keith again. Sorry. Um, Long time. <laughs> I'm sorry. So I think part of that last gentleman's question is, um, so there's two ways of doing the cash flow statement. What we're talking about and what's required by, um, what's required for public companies is the, is the, um, the indirect method where you take the full P&L and then you, based on accrual accounting, and then you reconcile back to it. And to jump back to something else, the delta between 100 million and 50 million, if there's 50 million in cash flows uh, between accounts receivable, you're absolutely right. It doesn't necessarily mean $50 million in total cash came into the business, right, from receivables. It's the change in the absolute reported levels, which is an important nuance. But I think what the last gentleman was getting at is that from that cash point of view, there's two ways to do the um, statement cash flows. You do the indirect method where you start from accrued statements, but you can also do the direct me method where you do all cash accounting, and then you go through and audit that the absolute cash balances add up to the right number at the end of the year. So I think that's what he was talking about, 25000 versus 5000 Um so, so when you say direct method, you mean cash accounting and indirect method, uh, that means accrual accounting? Yeah. So the direct method is comes from cash accounting, right? Like all like, like you pay, you know, you only record sales when you receive the cash and you only record expenses when you pay out the cash. So then you take those absolute numbers and, and that's the direct calculation, right? Right, but right. The, okay. the the reason I was saying earlier that you start from the bottom, bottom, bottom line of the P and L is that's the indirect method, because in that P and L are included all these non cash items like amortization, depreciation, right? And to yes, exactly. And then the last point I would make to you to your comment is you're absolutely right that in an inflationary environment, the 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 straight line depreciation method that you know, it, it does understate the real expense because that depreciation is meant to represent what the business will have to put out in the future to replace that equipment. But I would also make the flip side of the argument, which is what everyone knows about McDonald's, that there's also places where positive aspects of inflation aren't reflected. Like the real estate that's on the land that's on McDonald's balance sheet, it's still on the balance sheet as, on, as of the cash basis for when they bought it in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So in that case, the same argument works in reverse, where the stated assets on the balance sheet are dramatically underreported in an inflationary, inflationary environment, because certainly a $5,000 piece of land acquired in 1960 has some extraordinary value in 2022, 
but on the balance sheet, it's still $5,000. So that effect works both ways. And then this is the last thing, and I'll jump off. The other thing to bear in mind is that they have to tie to reality and accountants accelerate depreciation when we want to, right? Because we don't want to pay taxes. I'll put it like that. So a lot of times we'll do a section 179 election, which means if we buy a $500,000 tractor, we can depreciate it all this year. And that will throw off the general straight line way you think of operating a business versus actually tying out the statement of cash flows. Because if we accelerate that depreciation to knock down our earnings, right? We're taking all of that expense in one year and it throws off your interpretation of a single statement of cash flow. So just like the other statements, you really need to look at them side by side across a minimum three-year period for annual and say a minimum six-quarter period if you're looking at the quarterly numbers. And it's just another reminder that there's so many places to modify the appearances and ratios that investors are looking at. Um, But I really think that just going through it and rolling up your sleeves and looking at pragmatic businesses, you learn so much about it. Thank you. Uh, absolutely, Kate. The, the, these are uh, great points. So um, that, there are multiple ways inflation affects businesses. And uh, Keith made some very, very valuable points. So on, on the one hand, inflation uh, could mean that your book value uh, is now the value of your assets is now understated. So there are some assets like land that do not depreciate or are not uh, depreciated. Uh, and those assets increase in value over time, uh, at least in nominal terms, when, when you have inflationary environment. And now, um, so, so you may have acquired some piece of land a long time ago. Um, and so uh, the, that land may be on the books at a at cost price. Whereas that land may be far more valuable now, uh, partly because of inflation and partly because the land has itself uh, become more valuable uh, based on what it can produce and things like that. Uh, and if, if you look at uh, some companies, they may have a, a lot of assets like this uh, that are understated relative to true economic value. Uh, but one thing I would add is that uh, how are investors actually going to get this economic value out of the business? So the land, uh, if, if you just have a bunch of land and the land may appreciate every year, part of it is because of inflation, but until the land is actually sold, uh, investors aren't really uh, able to get value out of that land. So if that land is, I don't know, used to build a McDonald's or something like that, and um so, so un- unless you dismantle that Mc- McDonald's and actually sell the land, you, you don't actually see the value there. I'm, I'm not sure that's accurate in the sense of longevity of a business, because obviously McDonald's hasn't had this problem, right? But they can, all of those assets, even if their balance sheet value is $5,000, they can borrow at that, borrow against them however they want, Right. So if you have, let's keep the $5,000 and pretend that's all McDonald's ever bought, right? If you have that $5,000 that has a market value that's not reflected on your balance sheet of a million, which is probably the real number, actually, you can now borrow that million backed up by by the $5,000 asset, right? You can borrow a million dollars in cash against it, or let's say $800,000. And that's a way to leak cash. It depends on how much it's worth now, right? What's that? 
depends on how much the land is worth now. So, so the cost price of the land is five thousand dollars, and let's say now now the land is worth one one million dollars or whatever. Yep. So, so uh, McDonald's goes out and borrows one million against uh, this land. Yeah. But now the question is how? Uh, well, there are two questions. One is. Can it just give out this one million to shareholders? Then, in that case, yes, shareholders have seen one million so that's of why value because they can buy back stock with it if they believe that the rate they're receiving to borrow that money is lower than the discount to the intrinsic value of the business they're operating. That can become a me- mechanism of returning value to shareholders, and frankly, they can do it with dividends too. There's nothing illegal about that. But right, we're right. circling they, around they the reality that. that it's all about whether the managers of the business are good capital allocators or not. And that's why it's only businesses like McDonald's that you see like this, because those assets are still on their balance sheet because they've run the business so well, they've never had to dispose of them. So, Well, that, that is true. Um, so in, in, in a liquidation setting, yes, if, if you assume that the land can be liquidated, um, then Yes, you can borrow against it. You can you can do all all these things. But let's say that there is a McDonald's that is sitting on that land, uh, an actual oh. McDonald's restaurant, and let's say that that restaurant earns hundred k per year or whatever. So j- just because the land becomes more valuable, the land under the McDonald's becomes more valuable, does not mean the cash flows from that restaurant are going to increase over time. So it's not like they're going to charge more for the for the burger. Uh, that's being sold at that McDonald's or something like that. So, yes, you if the land becomes super valuable, then the company can borrow against it and can dispose of that land and, and so on. But it requires some kind of liquidation event ultimately uh, for shareholders to see value out of it. If, otherwise, the value of the land is just the value of the cash, uh, the stream of cash flows that the McDonald's that's sitting on top of the land produces. No, I so land I, increases tremendously. I agree with that, and I'm only bringing up land as a special case because it cannot be depreciated. Right? It's one of right. the few areas where there is some there is some method where the balance sheet is radically understated. But you're absolutely right. It all comes down to sort of how they manage it. And if they dispose of the land, part of their internal cost of capital, like the current value of the deal they're doing, has to include the fact that they're also disposing of whatever they're making in profit on the land, they're losing in the future cash flows of what they were doing on the land. I more brought it up as a nuance of accounting because land may not be depreciated pretty much in any circumstance, right? I think the other thing on the flip side with the anti-McDonald's case that I'd love to hear you talk about is this sort of, at this point, well-discussed phenomena where tech companies in particular, they're not as asset light as people think although they are more asset life than like the pencil factory, right? The truth is a lot of what would normally go onto the balance sheet of a traditional business, as in an asset, a land that you built. Now a huge piece of software you built can be fully expensed in year one, in any year under research and development. And that's a pretty common conversion that people do. And for instance, Aswath uh, Demodoran does it where he'll take the R&D line item of uh, the of a company like Intel. That's a bad example, but let's say Intel, right? He'll take that R&D line item 
and it'll hold aside a second set of books and says, okay, say, actually, I want to look at this because that $5 million that Intel, Intel reported in as an R&D expense, in the real world of running a software company, that would absolutely go on the balance sheet in the way you think of it, right? Like you're, 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 you're building that software product, uh, investing in the business against future returns. And so the other place the statement of cash flows is meaningful or these accounting concepts are meaningful is that tech companies in general understate their earnings for the simple reason that they're allowed to expense R&D where a traditional business, its version of R&D, the creation of something that will provide cash flows in the future by accounting rule has to go on the balance sheet. But by accounting rule for a tech company in the case of R&D has to go on the P&L. And that makes a huge adjustment to what the earnings look like. And again, at the end of the day, companies are trying to attract some shareholder interest, right? Like they want decent financials, but everyone's just pushing off the ball of paying taxes. That's the whole game. So to me, those are two interesting examples of where there can be more under the surface of the financials if you understand the nuances between R&D being expensed instead of capitalized onto the balance sheet or expensed onto the P&L instead of capitalized onto the balance sheet and the opposite case of McDonald's, which is keeping on the balance sheet something that is worth a lot more in the case of disposal. Now, McDonald's is never going to get disposed of. But again, I'd make the argument that the benefit to shareholders of that unreported balance sheet value is the fact that the company has deeper reserves to go through a crisis or to take advantage of a buyback scenario or to do special dividends than are at first glance apparent, apparent looking at its full financials. Yes, absolutely. Th- those are great points. And uh, both Taswad Damodaran and Michael Morbison have done a lot of work on um, this. Uh, I think Michael goat. Morbison... Right. Uh, he, he calls it the, the rise in intangible investing. So, so there, there is R&D. And another vehicle for doing this is sales and marketing expenses. So these are both kinds of expenses that are uh, expensed right away. Uh, the, the cash outflow, any any cash outflow that goes out because of R&D or because of sales and marketing tends to be expensed right away. Even though uh, uh, with, with R&D, you may use it to build a product or something like that. It, it's not very much different than investing to build a factory. So if, if you spend $1 billion on building a factory, you may be able to expense that over the next five years. Uh, whereas if you, uh, you may be able to capitalize it and depreciate it over the next five years. But if you spend the same $1 billion on R&D, you take out the, the cost right away, uh, even though both are investments uh, to grow your business. So uh, whatever value the factory produces over the next five years, uh, the R&D may also produce uh, the exact same value over the next five years. But in one case, it's expensed right away. And in another case, it is capitalized. And the same thing with sales and marketing. You may spend some money today to acquire a customer. And if that customer uh, stays with you for the next five years, uh, it may be reasonable to capitalize that sales and marketing expense spent to acquire that customer o- over the next five years. But it, instead, all of it is expensed uh, in year one and the ca- when, when the cash goes out the window. So uh, th- those are cases where uh, cash-based accounting, some- something similar is used. Whereas what uh, Aswad Damodaran and Michael Morbison, what these people do is they try to convert that cash-based accounting into some kind of accrual-based accounting, 
because that's the way the rest of the financial statements work. It's all exactly. accrual based and not cash based. So those, exactly. those are great points. Okay. Uh, th- thanks for making those points. Let's let's uh, take the next question from from Yinka again. Hi. Hello again. Uh, hello. I did. I, I joined a bit late, so I don't know if you talked about free cash flow. Um, so my understanding of free cash flow is that it represents what um, has the money that can be returned to shareholders, and in the form of buybacks or dividends. Is, does it also represent what can be used to pay down debt? And are there other things it could be used for? Uh, sure. I, I did not mention the the word free cash flow simply because, um, well, a lot of people say that free cash flow, which is typically defined as cash flow from operations minus cash flow from investing activities. So, we, we had three sections in the cash flow statement, operating activities, investing activities, and financing activities. And usually free cash flow is defined as whatever you have uh, in the operating activities minus whatever you have in the investing activities. So uh, this is defined to be free cash flow. And people usually say that uh, you, you can take out, uh, the owner of a business can take out whatever uh, free cash flow is that is the amount of cash that the owner can take out. But uh, there's an important uh, distinction that is missed by free cash flow. And uh, that distinction is how much of the investing activities are used to grow the business and how much are used to just maintain the current state of the business, the current earning power and uh, unit volume. So uh, I'll give you a simple example. So if you, if you have a store like five below, for example, right? Now, uh, let, let, let's say five, five below, uh, there, there's a particular store and that, that store makes $5 million uh, of profit. And now um, what happens is this, this $5 million is not entirely available to be taken out by the owners because some of it has to be used to buy more inventory and put it back in the store. Um, so this would be an example where uh, that that is inventory um, and, and there may be other, other fixed assets as well. Um, but the investments into additional inventory and additional fixed assets are not really being used to grow the business. They are just there to make sure that the business survives for another year and sustains its unit volumes and competitive position and things like that for another year. So in that case, uh, your, your free cash flow, uh, it, it, it may, may or may not reflect economic reality. But if, if you take the same five below, if uh, five below opens a new store, say, then the new store will have to be filled up with inventory and uh, there may be some fixed assets that go into creating the new store and so on. But that new store is going to deliver actual growth. So uh, investments made into an existing store may just result in preserving uh, the store's unit volume, whereas investments made into a new store may actually produce growth in the future. 
And in both cases, uh, free cash flow may be exactly the same, but in one case, uh, it actually produces growth. The, the investments actually produce growth. And in another case, the investments don't produce growth. So uh, there is this distinction between maintenance versus growth. And so I like to rely on uh, this, this particular metric that Buffett had. Uh, I believe it was in his 1986 letter, if I'm uh, not mistaken. And he had this concept of owner earnings. So how much can an owner of a business take out of the business, assuming that he doesn't want any growth from the business. He just wants to preserve the current earning power and unit volume and competitive position of the business. Then how much can an owner take out? Now, of course, the owner may decide that he may not want to take that out and he may want to invest into the business for future growth. But that is a separate capital allocation decision. Uh, what we are interested in is how much the owner can take out if he wished uh, without any growth. And that distinction between what is what reinvestments are required just for maintenance and what reinvestments are uh, um, can produce growth, that is missing from the free cash flow discussion. And and is that all hidden within CapEx? So it's hard well, to some, figure some out. Some of it some of it is hidden within capex so um, any any increase in fixed assets for example uh, which are made into a business so if uh, if so berkshire owns uh, burlington northern railroads and every every year uh, they have to keep uh, uh, upgrading the the railroad so when when they make uh, big investments to upgrade the fixed assets that the railroad has uh, those things will go into uh, capex the capex line item on the cash flow statement and that falls under uh, investing but uh, if they have to increase inventory or something like that a, a different store a, a starbucks may decide that it it has to increase its inventory uh, because of inflation or whatever and in that case uh, that would go under change in working capital so one is an increase in current assets the other one is an increase in fixed assets uh, but one of them goes into the operating section. The other one goes into the investing section of the cash flow statement. They're both investments made into the company, uh, capital invested to acquire assets. But because one is a fixed asset and the other is a current asset, they go into different sections on the cash flow statement. Yeah, yeah. So it could be on both sides. So you don't, you yes. don't just look at CapEx, okay. And, uh, well, there are some some businesses, as uh, as Keith mentioned, they are very capital light in that they don't have very many fixed assets, but they may require a lot of current assets. And so, even if capex is light, uh, you, you may have increase in working capital. Yeah, and and in terms of, I guess, what the cash is then used for, is, am I correct in those three things? So either buybacks dividends or paying down debt are there any other things any other uh pretty much so uh well well ca cash can can be used for a for a bunch of things um so uh if, if you want to return cash back to owners then uh, the two classic ways of doing it are uh, buybacks and dividends um you you, you could pay down debt um you, you could just let the cash pile up on the balance sheet a lot of tech companies have been doing that hoping that some opportunity comes up in the future. 
or you could go and make a cash acquisition so one one company could go and buy another company or you could take some of the cash and put it um, use it to expand your operations or whatever five below uh, could take some cash and use it to open a new store so cash can be used in a in a number of different ways you, you can reinvest back into the business you can go acquire some other business uh, you can use it for dividends buybacks you can use it to pay down debt or you can simply just let it pile up on the balance sheet so there are there are more than just two or three options for using cash perfect thanks that's all for me today thank you so much sure absolutely uh so so we have amro again it looks like we are cycling between the same set of callers today hello <laughs> hi um yeah i'm glad you you brought up the uh land uh example uh cuz that's really confusing for me uh, let, let's let's assume i have a company uh, i bought the land uh for a million dollars okay and Uh, that's the only asset they have on on the balance sheet so i have the 1 million on the asset side and i have i have a 1 million on the equity then the okay. next year i i sold that land for 2 million right um now in the income statement i'll have the 2 million as uh the uh, the uh, selling price and then i'll have to uh, take out the cost of 1 million i'll end right. up with income of 1 million right uh, yeah pre pre tax income of 1 million yes yeah l- l- let's assume there is no tax just oh, for okay. simplicity uh, all right uh now in in the cash flow if i'm going to prepare my cash flow um i'll have i'll start with the net income which is 1 million and there's a no depreciation and there's no uh adjustment for working capital I'll end right. up with uh, 1 million in operating cash flow when in fact I got 2 million when I sold the ca- assuming I sold it um uh, in cash. Well, there there is a change in in the fixed assets of the of the business as well, right? So it it depends on whether you view that land as a as a fixed asset. So so if that land was included as as fixed assets then the depreciation is zero because you did not have a depreciation charge but then uh your capex uh would would be uh something like a negative 1 million right because uh you 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 know well you you have something uh, well it, it it depends on uh let, let me see well so I think in this particular case you, there's something called gain on sale of assets and and things like that. So if buying and selling land is your uh primary business um then um you you, you have a different uh outlook on this but whereas if you were buying and selling land if it, if it's a one off thing this is not really the business that the the the, the company is engaged in uh this is just 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 happens to be one piece of land that appreciated and then and then you sold it now now you that there, there will be a line item in the uh cash flow statement in the, in the investing section that that says something like 
sale of property, plant, and equipment, or uh, gain uh, gains on sale of property, plant, and equipment, th- things like that. So uh, ultimately, at, at the at, at the start of the period, you had zero dollars of cash because all your assets were in this land. And at the end of the period, you had only one million of uh, reported income for the period, but you had two million dollars of cash on hand and that's because one million of that income came from uh, profits so that is one million of income and the other one million came from proceeds of the sale of the asset so uh, if you start your, your cash flow statement the top of the cash flow statement will say one million and the bottom of the cash flow statement will say change in cash equals two million I see. So, uh, what what if it was a primary business? Uh, like selling land, buying and selling lands is is my primary business. Yeah. So I love this stuff, and there's maybe a handful of people uh, that you can actually talk about it with. So, if uh, the buying and selling of land of is of real estate is your primary business, like just think it through, like a like a retail business. Um, in that case, if that's your primary business, the the first when you bought the property for a million, it would have been moved into inventory, right? And then when you sell the property the next year for two million, you would have one million in top line earnings, as you said, neglecting all other factors of tax and interest and uh, depreciation. You didn't hold it long enough, but then you would also have. Um, um, you would also have plus one million as your change in inventory because it was sitting in inventory at a million dollars on December 31st of 2020. And then you had zero inventory on December 31st of 2022 because you sold that inventory. So it would still show up in the decomposition, but the decomposition would be net income from operations plus one million. And in the working capital, which is still part of the operating cash flows, you would have net change in inventory for plus one million, bringing you to a total of two million. If you were not in the business of buying and selling land, when you bought the land in year one, right, in 2020, uh, that million dollars would go into, uh, would be um, um, negative to investing cash flows when you bought it, right? When you sell it in year two in 2021 for two million, now you'd have one million in bottom line net income, but the second million in cash would come out of changes to fixed assets in the investing bucket. So it's just a question of what type of business you are. And again, it's part of the reason to take this stuff so seriously because of course, as investors, we want cash and expanding multiples and things like that. But if you're evaluating a company, you're trying to evaluate the company as to whether they honestly represent why they made capital allocation decisions, right? And once you find out if they're doing that, now you want to say, okay, they've represented it properly. Did they actually make the capital allocation decisions that I as an owner of the company wanted them to make, right? And that's sort of, that's, it's not the last one, but it's close to the bottom of the stack of turtles on why financial statements need to be reviewed and, 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 and looked at with a critical eye. Because at the end of the day, every financial statement you've ever read, at least for a publicly traded company, 
It does not say that like the accountants decided this is how everything should be, although we all know that's part of it. All financial statements are exclusively from at the discretion of and based on the input of the managerial team. And believe me, they think it through, right? Right? Because there's, you can say I'm buying a million dollars in property because I intend to build a plant there, in which case your operating cash flows look better that year, right? But then once you sell it, right, the next year, it's that capital allocator, that management team essentially telling you, hey, we, you know, we, we might have misrepresented this, right? We put it in investing cash flows because that's what the market likes to see and it makes our earnings look better, right? But now we've actually just sold the thing. So now that's where those cash flows will go. But do you really believe a management team that bought a million dollar piece of property to use over the next 50 years and then happened to decide, decide to sell it one year later? I think at that point you look and say, you know, are these capital allocators representing their decisions properly? And then did they make the decisions that I would want them to make so that the business can be uh, can generate more cash? And then to back up real quick, guys, completely ignore free cash flow. Go right to the real financial statements. It's There's so much discretion. If the CEO says, I'm doing it for this reason, that's how it gets recorded on the accounting. And if he says, I'm doing it for this other reason, everything's the same, but the accounting shows up in a different bucket. And believe me, CEOs know when they make their decisions and explain it to the board and their CFOs that they understand the consequences of how the, their description of the core drivers of those decisions is going to affect the output of their financial statements. And free cash flow is one of the, one of, one of the ones that's like completely abused to tell a narrative. Um, so I would stay as close to sort of like the core principles of real accounting um, and be wary of that type of stuff because it's 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 very much has more to do with narrative and what the CEO you know wanted to say about the company than why the decision was actually made. Uh, absolutely, great great points. So so it depends on whether the land uh, is being carried on the books as inventory or as fixed assets, essentially. So if if the company is primarily in the business of buying and selling land, it may be carried uh, as inventory, in which case any change will show up as changes in working capital, uh, which includes inventory. So that falls in the operating section of the cash flow statement. Whereas if land is carried as a fixed asset, then um, any change in the value of the land, uh, which is realized when it's sold, may show up in the investing side of the cash flow statement. So um, great point. So if, if if a CEO wants to make one section of the cash flow statement look good uh, at the expense of the other section of the cash flow statement, there are, there are some levers they can use uh, to, to pull there. So, so great points by Keith. I think the, the important thing is there is economic reality and there is the financial statements. And all these things, the balance sheet, income statement, cash flow statement, the various ratios that we calculate from them, they're all attempts to arrive at economic reality. And um, so we have to learn how to analyze different kinds of financial statements and read the notes to the financial statements and arrive at what we think economic reality is. Uh, because there are rules to how these statements are reported 
sometimes uh, as we discussed you know r&d and uh, sales and marketing expenses they are expensed right away whereas economic reality may be that they should be expensed over a period of 5 years or whatever instead of being expensed right away so ultimately what we want to do is we want to take these financial statements as a starting point but then form our own opinion about the underlying economic reality which may or may not be easy to get from the financial statement and that that's where an investor's uh, true skill lies to study the financial statements use those as, as a starting point but then to ultimately form a view of economic reality and then invest based on the reality and not just what numbers you, we see on the financial statements so um i think with that i will conclude this section we don't have any more callers thank you all i enjoyed this immensely i hope you guys also learned something from this so this this completes our discussion of the three financial statements we have three different episodes one on the balance sheet one on the income statement and one on the cash flow statement uh, so i'm i'm very happy that we managed to cover all, all three financial statements this year thank you all very much see you next sunday bye bye